Well, I trust everyone had a good, restful, safe 4th of July. I guess if it wasn't safe, you wouldn't be here. But we're glad everybody was safe and, um, and you've joined us to worship the Lord today. If you haven't already done so, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the letter of Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 3. We're going to begin reading there in just a moment in verse 17. You know, when I was a boy, we used to be able to do things when I was young that wouldn't happen today. When I was young, we lived maybe a mile from the Quick Mart, a grocery store. In Texas, we call it the Ice House, but when we, we lived about a mile from there, and I had my bicycle, and my bicycle had a big basket on it. You remember baskets on bicycles? I had a big basket. And that was so, you know, people could ride with me. <laughs> you could put them in the basket, or I could carry things, my school books, or whatever the case may be. But on occasion, mom would say, I need some bread, I need some milk, or something like that, and would put down things on a note that I could get if she wrote a note. For example, if she wanted a box of cigarettes, carton cigarettes, um, I could go, ride my bicycle to the store, hand the note to the, the clerk, and they would give me a box of cigarettes. Anybody done that lately with a fourth grader? <laughs> Not going to happen in 2014, but uh, it could happen then because I went in the name of my mama. Then I could get it done. It makes a difference, though, whose name you invoke. In the Scripture, the name of Jesus is unlike any other name. We learn in Scripture that no other name has been given under heaven by which anyone and all people can be saved. The Apostle Paul, talking about that in Romans, would say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Apostle John in 1 John 5.13 said the whole reason he wrote the book was so that those who had believed in his name might be certain and know that by believing in his name that they have eternal life. The Lord Jesus said that if we asked anything in his name, he said, I will do it. And Luke, the disciples are excited because sent out as a group of 70 doing and reproducing the ministry of Jesus going out in his name, they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then in Philippians chapter 2, Paul explains that there's a day in history coming that God has given a name to Jesus that's above every name, that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And so the name of Jesus is a wonderful thing. And what we learn as we study this, this chapter 3 of, of the letter of Colossians is that the name of Jesus is something that should affect you and I every day. In the last uh, study that we did last week, we saw that the peace of God should rule in our hearts, that we should let the Word of God dwell in us. We should be thankful. And we saw that we were to allow Christ into every area of our heart we were not to leave him out or leave any area closed. And this week, we move from our inner world, where Jesus should have full reign and access, to our outer world. And Paul gives us two basic, simple principles to govern how we live on the outside and how we let Jesus in. Here's the first principle, very simple. Do everything with him. 
do everything with him. Listen to verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, some of us are really good at compartmentalizing our lives. There are certain times and places like Sunday or in Sunday school class where it's very easy for us to relate to other people and to engage our faith. But then there are other times in our life where it's as if we leave Jesus at the door and, and we go to certain people, certain places, certain times, and if anyone was looking at us, listening to us at that moment, they could not tell that we had any connection to Jesus Christ whatsoever. That's called compartmentalizing your life. In contrast to that, Paul says to do all in his name. What does that mean in daily practice? To do everything in his name in daily practice, what does that mean? Well, looking at this text, it means first that what I do is a sacred act. If I'm a Christian, if I'm in Christ, and Christ is me, everything becomes sacred. In verse 17, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all. And it's comprehensive. Nothing is left out. Paul is saying I can no longer segregate my life or compartmentalize my life or separate my, separate my life into things that are secular, where God's not involved, and things that are sacred, where God is involved. Can't do that anymore. In other words, the use of my words right now preaching is no different than the use of my words in a conversation on a ball field. Going to the mission field on a mission trip is no different in what I do and say than in going to the grocery store. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all. All words and actions. And as I think about doing things in the name of Jesus and I think about what I read in the New Testament and how signs and wonders and miracles were done in his, in his name, it's kind of surprising to see where Paul goes next. Because immediately he says that Christ in you should affect everything outside of you in terms of what you say and what you do, and he goes immediately to the most intimate relationships that you have in your life. That's where Jesus should show up first. For example, with Jesus, a wife yields her will. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting or proper in the Lord. What is fitting in the Lord or proper in the Lord is something that's been decided before he wrote this text. In fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis. The order in the home, the relationship of a husband to his wife and a wife to his husband. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as if he was the Lord. And so with God, when he is coming out of a woman's life in a marriage relationship in her words and her deeds, this concept of submission is what appears when she is doing it with Jesus. Now, submission in our culture is a dirty word, but let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Submission is not demeaning or meaning that someone who submits is inferior. 
If that's true, it's used of children to parents, of believers to the elders in the church, of servants to masters, of believers to one another, of the whole church to Christ. It does not mean inferiority, and it is not demeaning. It does not mean enduring or suffering abuse, real abuse. It does not mean silence. It does not even mean agreement. It may surprise you to learn that women who are in a relationship with a husband who does not even know Christ, meaning they disagree on the most basic relationships of life, they disagree on the most basic of decisions. She knows Christ, he does not know Christ, and in 1 Peter 3 he says that a wife in that situation should be subject to her husband. So it doesn't even mean agreement. It doesn't mean the suppression of personality or talents, or gifts. It doesn't mean that she's submissive to all men, just to her own husband. What is submission? Positively, submission is voluntary. When he says for wives to submit to their own husbands, it is in the middle voice in the Greek, meaning the action is performed on herself. She does it to herself. She chooses voluntarily to yield her will to the will of her husband. It's ultimately to the will of the Lord. It's yielding her will and embracing another's leadership, a responsibility for leadership that God placed on husbands for what happens or doesn't happen spiritually in a home. We have no trouble doing what the boss says at work sometimes, but we really wrestle with the idea of leadership in a home. Our entire culture and society has treated submission as something ugly and demeaning. Submission is supporting, embracing, following, and enjoying the leadership of a husband by his wife. It's supporting and not undermining his leadership with responsibility in relationship to children. He will give an account. He will be held responsible in that relationship. Now, with Jesus, what he goes to right away is this most intimate of relationships between husbands and wives. He said, with Jesus, a wife yields her will. And then he says, with Jesus, a husband loves his wife with tenderness. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter or sharp or pointed or hurtful toward them. In Ephesians 5.25, he says something very similar. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And so the love that's described is sacrificial in nature. It is uh, laying down of one's life for someone else's life. Husbands are never told to rule their wives. Husbands are never told to dominate their wives. Husbands are never told to force submission on their wives. They are told to love their wives sacrificially I can hear a husband now thinking well it'd be easier to love her if she would follow me well you need to give her something to follow and that's really not your business your calling is to love her as Christ loved the church what did Jesus hold back in his love for the church what did he fail to give what did he fail to offer? What part of his life did he not give for her benefit? The word agape that's used here 
does not refer to love as an emotion, which is really good because we're commanded to do it. It's really hard to command someone to feel a certain way. Rather, agape love is a commitment to doing what's best for another person regardless of the cost to myself. And that's a choice. And it's an act of the will. With Jesus, a husband loves with tenderness. In verse 20, with Jesus, a child obeys. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And so he's involved even in this relationship. And this passage to me is stunning because here it is in Colossians 3, and Paul addresses children just like fathers, just like mothers, just like wives, just like husbands. He addresses children. And so in the context of Colossians 3, he's talking to children, which tells me they also can be raised with Christ Jesus. They also can seek those things which are above. They also can set their minds. They also can starve the sin monster and put to death their members which are on the earth. They also can put off old sin habits, saying no to sinful desire, and put on new godly habits, saying yes to the Holy Spirit. They also can open up their heart and let the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ go into every region of their heart. And he speaks to children as if they were as spiritually capable as mom and dad. And they are. And they have a responsibility. And with Christ, when he is the center and focus of the child's life, they, with Jesus, will obey mom and dad. It ultimately means as well that parents are not finally responsible for everything their child does amen children bear their responsibility for their own actions and their behavior just as adults do he goes on and says with jesus a father encourages verse 21 fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged you say well there's nothing about the lord in there well in ephesians 6 4 he says something very similar fathers Bring them up, bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, the training that he leads and gives, the admonition that he leads and gives. Fathers do this, he says. In contrast to that, he says if, if you provoke your child, they become discouraged. Discouraged is the opposite of encourage, even in the original language at this point. And it's like here's a child that has full of life, full of excitement, full of spirit, dreaming, excited about life and here comes a father and he somehow manages to suck the life out of the child that's what he means by discouragement it's just the opposite and rather than win the heart through overcorrection, through failing to affirm through constant comparison through a persistent criticism that father can cause the child to feel that they're absolutely of no value and unable to succeed at anything but with Jesus, fathers encourage children. With Jesus, a slave works without supervision. Say, well, we don't have slaves in our culture. No, but you may see a, a relationship here to where you live. Bond servants, verse 22, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And so he's describing a circumstance where a servant or a slave or in our culture an employee or in a school a student as long as there's some authority in the room they work hard and they behave but when that authority leaves the room is not looking or seeing what's going on then everything changes that's eye service and he says that with Jesus 
we work as hard when people are there as when they aren't. I remember in high school one time in a biology classroom, we were dissecting fetal pigs. The teacher left the room. I have no idea why, but someone got the idea to take the entrails of a fetal pig, which are about 15 to 21 feet long, and decided to attempt the jump rope with them. And they broke and went in the light fixtures and on all the students around him. I had no idea that would happen. <laughs> and I never would have done that had the teacher stayed in the classroom. <laughs> I service. With Jesus, a slave works without supervision. Also with Jesus, a master provides an adequate living. Look at the next chapter, 4, verse 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Even every employer, every master, every person in authority is accountable to God. And in this particular instance, that master was responsible not just to give them something, but to take care of them, to provide them living, a livable wage in our culture. And so you have a responsibility not only to be profitable in your business, but also to be Christ-like in your business and to take care of the people who work for you. Masters, he says, give your bondservants what is just and fair. To do all in the name of the Lord Jesus in daily practice means that what I do is a sacred act. It also means that what I do is a supernatural act. He says, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is not simply to utter the words at the end of a prayer. I do it. Most of us do it. It helps remind us that we are to pray in the will and according to the heart and passion of Jesus Christ. But it's not just uttering the words. It's a way of life. Typically, doing something in the name of someone else is taught or represented in much the way that an ambassador represents their government or their king or their president to another state, another government. And so you put the ambassador on the plane, he has his directions, his guidance from the president or the king, he flies to another country, and he is an ambassador who is acting in the name of the one in charge. And that concept is useful, it is actually used in scripture, but it does not carry the full import of what we are told to do here when we are to do everything in the name of Jesus. Why is that? Because when you go and you do and speak, you do and speak with Christ in you. The king is present. And so not only is my heart open to him, but my words and my actions are to be open to him, to his influence, his direction. He is a king. He doesn't sit in my heart and make suggestions. There's no place in the universe where he's not in charge. There's no square inch on planet earth where he is not Lord. And what makes me think that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ in you, the hope of glory, sits in my heart and says, I think that would be a good idea, son. No. He's there to guide us, to direct us. What does it mean to act in his name? Here's the definition I want to give you. It is doing his will 
under his authority, in his power. It is doing his will under his authority, in his power. So what I do and say is not about me. It should be all about him. I should consciously expect to call more attention to Jesus when I am with him than to myself. It's not about me. John the Baptist said it this way. He must increase, I must decrease. It's not about me. It's not up to me. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to make all the decisions. I don't have to figure it all out. Why? Because the one who has a purpose, the one who has a plan, the one who has a will lives in me. It's not up to me. And then I love the last one. It's not dependent on me. He has the power. It is his power that enables us to do all things through Christ. And when Christ is present, all of Christ is present. The same Lord Jesus who healed the sick and raised the dead, who was raised from the dead himself, who was buried and was raised from the grave, the same one who spoke the word and all creation came into existence. It doesn't depend on my power or my strength or my will or my ideas. When you came in, you should have received a name tag. And if you're like people in first service, some of you may have already written your name on it. Anybody do that already? No, don't hold it up. It's all right. If you did write your name on it, this really looks good. Cross it out. And what I want you to write on your, your, your tag that you got when you came in is the name Jesus. And it looks really dramatic if your name's crossed out. I mean, that just adds to the picture. But you write, write the name Jesus on your tag, and then I want you to take your tag and put it right here. Okay? Now think with me. Imagine with me what it would be like if you wore this to lunch today. If you went to the grocery store and you wore this. What if you wore this all week? You carried with you the name of Jesus right here. How many conversations would that start? What questions would people ask you? Would you be a little bit more conscious of what you say and do if you were wearing the name of Jesus on your shirt? When you see some people this week with this on, are you going to have to apologize to them for something you said or did last week when you weren't wearing this? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's giving us two guiding principles. To do everything with him means from the mundane to the miraculous, I don't do it in my own strength, it's not my choice, it's not my direction, it's not my dream, it's all about him, and I'm under his direction. So do everything with him. But here's the second principle. Do everything with him. Do everything with, or excuse me, for him. Huh. Do everything for him. Verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I love that phrase. Do it heartily. 
as to the Lord and not to men. If I was reading that in my quiet time Bible at home, I'd take my pen, I'd underline that or circle it. As to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. We don't do it for the boss, we do it for Jesus. That's his point. Do everything for him. Paul is getting down to where you and I live. He's getting down to our core motivation for why we do and speak. And how are we as Christians to be motivated? Well, the Christian's motivation, we see three things here. First, it does not lie in paychecks, promotions, or other people. If your motivation is a paycheck or a promotion, or whether you like somebody or don't like somebody, you're going to be poorly motivated to do what's said in this verse. He says, do it as to the Lord and not to men, in verse 23. In verse 25, he says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. Some years ago, I was working with a staff member in a church, and I was on staff at that particular church. And this person had responsibility for our recreation ministry. We had a family ministry center, and we staffed it seven days a week, so we would use it. And, um, and they took care of sports and leagues and equipment and all those kinds of things. This was their first ministry role. First time they'd ever had this kind of a, a job. And, and it wasn't going well. Let me tell you why. I think you can figure it out why. About 4 o'clock every afternoon, you did not want to be in that person's doorway to their office because you were going to get out of the way or you were going to be run over because they were out of there. And their entire approach to ministry was to treat it as an hourly job. And if you're on staff at a church, if you're in ministry, you're just like the owner of a business or something like that. You are not subject to uh, overtime requirements. You can work any 80 hours a week you want. And, and so this person was treating their ministry assignment like that, like an hourly job, just a job. And I sat down with them and talked to them at one point. And I said, you know, ministry doesn't work on a 9 to 5 or an 8 to 4 basis. They're just, they're things that don't happen on schedule. And when people need help, they can't always, they can't always wait till next week. When it's life and death and when there's a crisis. And I said, sometimes... There are things that still need to be done, and you can't just go it for. And this person was not getting things done. And this is what they said in that conversation. This church doesn't pay me enough to do that. I told that staff member they would never make it in ministry. And they didn't. Christian, if your boss isn't treating you right or paying you well, that is no excuse for slacking off. The motivation that you and I 
should have when we work cannot be tied to our pay or to a promotion or whether I like somebody or whether I don't like somebody. There's something else. The motivation needs to come not from outside the believer, but from inside the believer. You know, sometimes you say, if my boss was better, I would work harder. Well, Jesus said, I'll take care of your boss. <laughs> if there's an injustice in the workplace, if they're not paying you well, if they're abusing you, if they're not doing something right in the workplace, he, he just said that there's no partiality. Every injustice will be made right. There's a judgment day coming. Sin in the workplace is just as bad as sin in your personal life or anywhere else that you may commit a sin. And God will take care of that. He's also the one that rewards you. And so your motivation can't come from out there. It's got to come from inside. This is why he says, whatever you do, do it heartily. Heartily means from the heart. Literally, it means from the soul. From your inner world, that's where you find your motivation to do what you do in your outer world. It's got to come from in here. If it's not in here, it's never going to come. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ lives on the inside. He is the motivation. He is the reason we do what we do. And he supplies everything you need to get up. And whether constitutionally you're wired this way or not, he provides everything you need to get up and to go joyfully into your workplace and from the heart give a full day's effort in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that the believer has that the unbeliever doesn't have? We have the presence of Christ. We have the favor of God. We have the very power of God living in us. We feed on grace. Dallas Willard once wrote that saints burn grace like 747s burn jet fuel. We live off of grace. So our motivation doesn't lie in paychecks, promotions, or people. It comes from inside, not the outside, the believer. But finally, our motivation is to serve Christ in every situation and relationship. Every situation and relationship, we serve Christ. As to the Lord and not to men. As to the Lord and not to men is not an imaginary deal where I just sort of overlay the face of Jesus over that boss that I can't stand. It's more than that. As to the Lord and not to men means that I am not serving that boss. Ultimately, I am serving Christ. And so in a very real sense, in my mind, I've got to take that boss, that leader, that authority, whoever it is I'm working for, and literally set them aside in my mind, and I've got to fix my determination, my heart, my service, what I'm doing on Christ. As if I'm serving him in truth, if he, as if he was there physically, my heart needs to serve him just like that. Now, if you don't do that, you're going to be miserable. Because that person who's in charge is going to make you miserable. They don't even have to try. Some of them are really gifted at it. Have you noticed? And God, it's no accident that God has you in that workplace when that happens. Manly Beasley used to call those people heavenly sandpaper because they just grate on you. And God's using them to grow you in Christ and Christ-likeness.
If that boss makes me happy or unhappy every day, they are controlling my life, not Jesus. If what they do or not do can make my whole day, can make my whole life, can make my whole week, Christ is not in control of my heart. You serve the Lord Christ, Paul says. Do it as to the Lord, not to men. I wouldn't say that to him. I'm not serving you anyway. I'm serving Jesus. I don't don't think that's good. But in your heart, that's what you've got to do. Everything we do should be with him and for him. Do you know Christ? This whole series of studies has been about real Christianity. And a real Christian is not someone who's joined a church or belongs to a particular denomination. A real Christian is someone who has heard the message of the cross and has been changed forever by it. I grew up in another religious tradition. I had not heard the gospel. Some friends invited me to an environment or church setting where I heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And what I heard turned my life upside down, turned everything. I thought I had to be good enough. I thought that God's whole intent was to make me good enough and that he had said, here I am, and here's the way to get there. Work, 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 work to get you there. That was my thinking. Everything depended on me. He gave me the church. He gave me stuff an environment, he gave me the truth, and it was up to me to make it happen. And I did not understand the gospel. Here's the good news. Work, work the rest of your life, and maybe you'll go to heaven. That's not good news. And what I heard was this, that God knew that I was made for him. God originally made each of us for himself. And the way that you and I were originally designed to live was not independently of God, but under his lordship. There we found abundant life. There we found real life. There is eternal life, knowing God and his son whom he has sent. But we lost that. Our forefathers, Adam, Eve, lost that. And sin broke humanity. Every human being here was born broken by sin, damaged by sin already condemned and separated from God, from birth. And God knew we were helpless. God knew on our own we could not fix this. Some of us spend our whole life trying to fix ourselves. We're frustrated. And I'm speaking to you if you're ready to quit that. Because the Bible says Jesus came into this world, sent by the Father, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus Christ lived in such a way that everything he did and everything he said was exactly what God wanted him to do. In perfect communion with his Father, never broken by sin, never damaged by sin, never separated by sin. And then the Bible tells us he was arrested, wrongly accused, and died on a cross. And that on that cross, he was not just being executed by Roman soldiers. On that cross, Peter would say that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
and he took all of our sins on him, past, present, and future sins, took all of my sins, plural, on him, not sin in general, but sin specifically, and he paid the price that my sins deserved, and he died, and the Father raised him from the dead, he sits now at the right hand of the Father, but he sent his Holy Spirit back into this world, and every person that hears the message of the cross and responds to that message by saying, Jesus, I'm turning from every effort to save myself, and I'm entrusting my life, all that I am, into your hands. Faith, trust, belief. The Bible says that that person is saved, forgiven, They've been justified is a big theological word. That means that God takes that person and they are forgiven in such a way that they are as clean and forgiven as if they had never sinned because Jesus took all their sin to the cross, justified. Made right with God even though I wasn't right. Made right with God even though I've never done anything right. Justified. A gift. He redeemed me. To redeem means to set something free by the payment of a price. I was in bondage to sin. Sin was my master. Sin held me in its grip. When he redeems someone, he pays a price, and they are set free. The price of redemption in Scripture is always the same. It is the life and the blood of Jesus Christ. Redeemed. Sanctified means that the moment you trusted him, he took you and set you apart and said, this is mine. This man is mine. This woman is mine. This child is mine the moment you trust him. And that I've determined that this one who is mine one day will be just like me. And it's going to be holy as I am holy. I'm going to change this one from the inside out. And I could go on for hours. I know you believe me. Talking about the marvelous, wonderful grace of God. But do you know how he gives us all of that stuff? You know how he does it? Not as a package where he says, okay, here's justification, take it. Here's redemption, take it. Here's sanctification, take it. No, he doesn't do it that way. He does it at the moment you trust Christ. He takes you, the essence of you and all that you are, and he puts you into Christ. He unites you with Christ. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, unites with your spirit, and you become a new creature, a new creation in Christ. We call it being born again. We call it a new birth. And so the Spirit of God comes to live inside a person, and you are in Christ, but the same time that you are in Christ, in order to change you, Christ comes to live in you. And so you trusted Christ 20 years ago, 40 years ago. You say, I'm already saved, and I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, what's grace doing for you today? Grace is for every day. Christ saves you every day. He has a will for your life. He has direction for your life. He has a power to give you so you can do the things that he's called you to do. And Jesus said that kind of life, it's abundant. It's the best kind of life. There's nothing comes even closer to it. Nothing comes close to it. Life in Christ. The Christ-filled life. That's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 3. 
Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? It all starts with that first step to say yes to the good news of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. If you're in the balcony, we'll wait for you. If you're down here, just come. And they'll share scripture with you. You can read for yourself passages like John 3, 16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They'll share scriptures like that. You have to take my word for it. You can read it. They'll share scriptures with you. You can talk with them. They'll pray with you. You can leave here today knowing that you put your trust in Christ and that he has saved you based on his word. And then every believer here, every Christian that's here, whatever you do, in word or deed, you and me, we're called to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. How's it going? How's it going? And during this time of response, which is part of our worship individually, you may just need to bow your head and talk to the Lord about that. You can come and kneel at the front. Maybe you want to pray for yourself. If you've got a burden for someone that you love that you're praying for, you can use this as a response to come and worship just by praying at the front if that helps you please take advantage of it we'll be here at the front to pray with you counsel you can pray right where you are and you can join us as we sing however the lord leads how you respond to him our father and our god we thank you for your word and how you have taught us through your word how to live how to have life in christ and lord we pray increasingly that we would be known as a people among whom Christ lives and Christ dwells. And may his life, his laughter, his love, may his, his work, his ministry, and his mission become evident increasingly in our lives. Fathers, we set this moment apart in our worship to respond to you. Would you lead us, Holy Spirit, as we respond? Guide us in our response, we pray. In Jesus' name.